<clears throat> well, uh, the other day at work, I had a really interesting conversation with a coworker. Um, looked over and I saw he has tattoos. Uh, I've heard about people that have tattoos, so I've always wanted to ask them uh, <laughs> about the, his tattoos. And uh, yeah, and I was in my own head, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe they're you know related to Buddha or Muslim or something. And um, he said, no, they actually it's a, a Christianity and kind of Egyptian mixture. And I said, oh, really? That, that's really neat. Uh, you know, could you explain like wh- like the the details of that tattoo and everything and uh, he said, yeah, so he, he basically summed it up as, is there's hypocrisy in religion. Um, so we, we got to keep talking, and, and, he, and he proceeded to tell me forth, yeah, I, you, know, I, I, uh, you know, I try to be not biased when I approach things, and I try to not to be judgmental, you know. Uh, I hate hypocrisy, so this is how I want to live. I said, and maybe a little um, quip, but I said, well, that's that's really fascinating. I said, you, you know, you. So you say you you've never been judgmental. I said, wow, you you must be a perfect driver, because I know if somebody cuts me off, I, you know, I have no thought, or I have thoughts, and and sometimes they're not the nicest. But but in that moment, you're able to not judge and and hold no biases. And he said, yep. So I had to repeat myself because I wasn't sure if he understood. And he said, yeah, yeah, I just I don't judge him. I said, wow. I said, okay. And we got to keep, we kept talking and kind of going towards uh, his, his principles and, and his beliefs and, and how he defines truth. And, and I said, well, it, it pretty much sounds like you define truth and, um, you know, or truth is relative. And he said, well, I just, I don't want to stop somebody from, from what they want to do. I said, okay. So I said, would it be okay if somebody came and, and killed your family? And he said, well, well I mean, that, that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be okay. I mean, that's, that's my family. It, it's personal. And I said, okay, so what about the Nazis and killing Jews and everyone else? And he proceeded to say, oh, well, you know, they, they deserved it. And, and, and you just like, like a, a rat going in a maze where you, you kind of point out, the air, and he runs back over here and tries to regather his arguments, and um, it was inconsistent. He was relative with truth, and, um, and, and to him, he was the definer of truth. Um, but, but later, wh- where I'm getting at with this is, is later, I found out he had children, um, and I'm just thinking to myself, with those views and, and, and his, his decisions, here he is influencing and, and being a leader to these children, um, right? He is a father, and, and, and he has influence. And I thought of my own children and, and how I influence them and um, how I, I don't want to be a, a hindrance to truth or the application of truth. And, and that's, that's the biggest question, right? One question that, that we will get to with the text is, what must someone do to not be a hindrance to the source and application of truth? Or what must I do, right, as a Christian, what must I do to not take another believer's eyes off of Christ because my influence might cause them to sin? If you have your, your Bible, could you please open up to Luke 17? 
We'll be in Luke 17, verses 1 through 10 today. Beginning in verse 1. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the seed, and it would obey you. Which of you having a slave plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and, and sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we have ought to done. In your Bible, who here has chapter breaks or little indications of, of sectioned off texts? There's a couple in there, right? Um, the NASB, I don't believe in a different format, has that. I have bolded numbers at verse 5 um, and verse 7. Um, but <clears throat> as you'll see, th this, is a, a, this is a one unit thought. Right, the last chapter in chapter 16 ends with the rich man and Lazarus. After uh, verse 10, it will be the 10 lepers who are cleansed and, and only one returns. And so here we have one complete story, right? And, and, and this is not like Luke in the end of, of writing his gospel remembers some, some sayings that, that Jesus and the disciples said. And, oh man, I got to really add this in. People... People need to have their faith verse to go to, and they need to speak to, to trees and uproot them in the sea, and, and that will be good for there. And, and oh, i got to put in a slave passage and you know, really get hum people to humble themselves. But, but as you see, as we walk through this, uh, you'll see this as, as one complete unit. And the intent of Luke is that he is warning the disciples of the certainty of stumbling blocks and these actions and attitudes. That's what you're going to see from verse 3 to 10, right? You're going to see these actions and attitudes that keep them from being a stumbling block. But there's a timeless truth that's going to apply to them yesterday and, and us today. And, and here's how I would say it. Luke provides five conditions, right? Five conditions that keep you as an access to truth and not a cause for stumble. Right, in, in, in Luke 17, 1 through 10, we're going to read how Luke provides five conditions that keep you 
as an access to truth and not a cause for stumble. Again, those chapter breaks, don't let those fool you. You, you might want to put a mark in them and, and know that this all belongs together because we will see how, how it fits together. And this is important for you today, um, right? Some of you are headed off to college, right? Um, you will have an influence in your life. At one point or another, you will have an influence, right? Maybe it's one person, maybe it's a couple, um, you know, some of you are just advancing in age and, and you're getting more responsibility, whether it's in the house. Um, maybe that's your greatest sphere of influence is, is at the house and you have younger brothers and younger siblings. Maybe even indirectly at, at in, in D-group nights. You're all around the table and, and someone just looks up to you and, and, is, and is watching everything you do and, and everything you say and, and, and you have influence right? And again, the question is, what must someone do to not be a hindrance to this source and this application of truth? The first condition Luke provides, right, is that you expect obstacles to truth. This is going to be the first condition. We're going to see this in verse 1. And Luke provides is, is a, a, the first condition is you expect obstacles to truth. Expect them. Verse 1. He, that's Jesus, said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Literally, you could say, it is impossible for stumbling blocks not to come. Stumbling block, that's just, that's the word scandalon. Um, I looked up the, the, the Google definition, and, and currently, and we'll, we'll see where that goes in a few years, uh, it's just an action or an event regarded as morally wrong or legally wrong and, and causing general public outcry. The right? uh, first one that comes to mind, Watergate. I know you guys weren't there. I wasn't either, but that was a scandal, right? Uh, um, it caused an outrage in the public's eye. Um, however, in Greek literature, it's interesting, uh, it's not used very rarely. Um, so this primarily has Hebrew uh, roots to it. And the Hebrew equivalent takes Google's definition uh, just one step further. It's an obstacle on the path over which one falls. So a stumbling block, right, is, it, is an, an obstacle on the path over which one falls, or it's an action or circumstance that leads one to act contrary to a proper course of action or set of beliefs. You could say it's a temptation to sin, enticement, or eventually it could e eventually even included a hindrance. Leviticus 9, 14, 19, 14 says, do not place a stumbling block before the blind. In Isaiah 57, 14, it says, make every obstacle, or clear every obstacle away before the Lord. Um, Bell Road is a great example of an obstacle right now. Uh, for the past five years, I have turned left on Bell Road to go home, and I simply cannot break that habit and when I get in the left turn lane and cars are coming by, I say, oh, how did I remember? And I go down Bell Road and, and those signs and, and the closed lanes are just obstructions and hindrances to me getting home, right? So, so right here, right, when, he, when Jesus is speaking about summing blocks, it's, it's similar like that. It's not a person. It's, it's not a, 
a specific person. It's, it's in the neuter, so it means uh, it's not referring to someone right here. It's referring to something. A stumbling block then could be any idea or false teaching or speculation that attacks the Bible and God. Um, and Jesus says, you need to expect these obstacles to the truth, right? It is inevitable, right? Jesus knows this. Do you? Do you expect obstacles to the truth? You know, but what would motivate Jesus to warn about the certainty of stumbling blocks? Remember where he was when, when man fall. He was witnessing everything. And, and who was there when man fell? Satan, right? Satan raised doubts and suspicion in the mind of Eve, and he challenged truth. And he said, did God really say? Right? Satan rejected God's truth. He questioned the author and the perfecter of truth. Right? And Satan presented an evil idea, and, and all he said was, did God really say? He made his case that God is not the source and the definer of truth, and as a harmless serpent, he offered a lie, and he sugar-coated it, and, and said, did, did God really say that? It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Do you know even healthy churches today are not exempt from stumbling blocks. Even, Christ, even until Christ returns, the church is susceptible to false teachings, godless ideologies, wrong belief systems, and evil ways. And some stumbling blocks do not even advertise with big neon signs, right? Um, they speak about peace and unity, and, and it seems really nice. Uh, you know, if you go onto the Muslims' uh, website, it's a very user-friendly um, very nice colored and, and great illustrations, and it, and it seems nice, seems good. But we know those are cults. But what about the subtle ones creeping into the church? Does God really say you don't need to repent? That Jesus Christ doesn't need to be the Lord of your life? That even denominations claim that you need to speak in tongues in order to be saved, Right? What about the Jesus-only movements? Those all sound really great, right? But false religion and false teachings are stumbling blocks. They are costly air that is not only inevitable to come through those doors, right, but that air that could cause you to sin. So the first condition that Luke provides is that you expect obstacles to truth. The second condition that Luke provides you to be an access way to truth is that you know the fate of stumbling blocks, right? Condition number two is you need to know the fate of stumbling blocks. Back to verse one. He said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they, that would be the stumbling blocks, Woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And I believe Luke is emphasizing two main points here in verse 1. We see that contrast of word titled but. I believe this is a separate point because beginning in verse 1, 
he signals the certainty of stumbling blocks or obstacles to truth. Right? Those are in the neuter, so it's just a system. It's just a, a false idea. It's, it's nothing. It's not a person. Right? And it, but in the rest of verse 1, he points out the human agency through whom God, these godless ideologies and heresies come. So here we have, a, we have people in addition to these false ideologies, false teachings. If doctrines that cause people to sin are inevitable, then the carriers of those ideas are godless instruments destined for judgment. Does anybody remember who Jesus called a stumbling block? Yeah, Peter, right? Here he uses it and he directs it at a person, right? Why did he call him a stumbling block? Oh, yeah. Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what did he say? He said, he said, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And what, do you remember what Jesus wanted to do? Anyone? No? Yeah, Leslie? Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he wanted to go to the cross, right? He said he must be persecuted, he must suffer, he must die, and he must raise again from the dead. And Peter said, I forbid it, right? And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man. Jesus nails Peter's hard issue right on the head, right? Selfish motives. Peter was attempting to stop Jesus's purpose. And here, right, interjecting this woe, right, that would have, think about Peter listening to this, that would have hit him right in the heart and said, oh man, I need to know the fate of that person who is going to be a stumbling block, right? And he says, woe to that man through whom they come, right? The stumbling blocks. And this is not woe like, whoa, man, that's pretty awesome, right? This is not that woe. I think that one's spelled W-O-A-H. This here is woe, W-O-E, and this denotes pain or displeasure, um, loss of peace, unrest, impending judgment, fear characterizes this person's condition, right? Rightly so. Verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck than that he would, oh, sorry, and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. And, and here the little ones are, are, are not children, right? There's no uh, context here that would say that it's children, He's been talking to his disciples in the crowds uh, since chapter 15 and, and really no mention of any children. This would be people of little uh, significance, right? Kind of the unsuspecting, um, just the, the, the coming along, you know, uh, you're following somebody, you're, you're a disciple of somebody, you have no major role, you're not a, a Pastor Scott, kind of just, just like us, right? We're, we're, we have uh, people we look up to and um, you know, nothing, nothing significant about us. Um, but, but here Jesus says, woe to him through whom they come, right? Better that he would be cast into sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, the sanctification of believers is as valuable as eternal life in Christ's eyes. You might have been thinking, man, that, that seems like a really harsh, right? It's clear, it's graphic, but, but here, right? Christ is emphasizing that, that this is an eternal 
implication, right? Jesus Christ loved the church. He went to the cross and he shed his blood for the church. The church is the pillar and the support of truth, 1 Timothy 3.15 says. And the local church is full of body, the body of Christ, right? Believers. And Christians are to place truth into one another's mind, like Romans 15.14 says. And Christians are to cause the growth of others as they speak the truth in love. Christians are not to be hindrances and obstacles to the truth. And Jesus does not take his sheep's injuries lightly, and neither should we. This is a, a very graphic and, and scary illustration, and yet the physical death of someone is more tolerable than the judgment that awaits. Millstones were just round slabs of stones for grinding grain, and whether small or, or large, uh, Jesus' point is pretty straightforward, right? It would be better for someone to die than to lead another believer into sin. Are you a clear path towards biblical truth? Think about that. Right? If God's word is truth and the Holy Spirit is truth, are you an open highway in the middle of the night without construction workers and you have neon signs that say, I know where Christ is and I live it out what he says and, and follow me. I'm not going to hinder you. Do others look at your life and, and think the same thing? Do they want to love and obey Christ more because of, because of you? Luke 17 is flashing big, bright warning signs, right? To the one who does not heed Jesus' words, you must know the fate of a stumbling block, and there is great judgment that awaits. The third condition, we'll see that in, in verses 3 through 4, the third condition Luke provides is that you vigilantly interact in soul care. You vigilantly interact in soul care. <clears throat> and soul care begins first in your heart. The first action in vigilant soul care is personal attentiveness. Look at verse number three. Be on your guard. ESV says, pay attention to yourself. Right up until this point, Jesus' remarks have been kind of remote or not as personal. Right? He has not called his disciples into action. He just simply wants them to know. Right? He wants us to know. But beginning in verse 3, Jesus now expects duty. He calls into account personal accountability. Stumbling blocks, causes to sin, false belief systems are not only out there, but they begin in here. They begin in here. All right, be on your guard. Pay attention to yourself. Right? In other words, be in a state of alert. Be concerned about. Take care. Play, pay close attention to something. Give heed to it. Occupy yourself with this. Students, this command is, is not a suggestion and, and not a preference. Soul care is a 24-7 duty. If a Christian's privilege is to in vigilantly interact in soul care, how can you point others to Christ if you aren't even aware what's going on in here, if the guards are down in here? How can others learn to obey Christ if you, the leader, are relaxed, right? Jesus' command to pay attention to one another, to, or to yourself, to be on guard, 
parallels Proverbs 4.23, right? Keep your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. I think some of you, and including myself oftentimes, believe this means that the Lord understands the need for spiritual breaks, right? Has anybody seen that uh, Tom Hanks movie, The, the Terminal? Yeah, it's, it's pretty neat. We, we watched it the other We've been on a kind of Tom Hanks uh, thing for about a uh, couple months now. But we ran across, uh, we ran across The Terminal. And that, that's, that's a really neat film to think that Tom Hanks kind of used that accent the whole time. He must have been doing that even off screen, but uh, nevertheless, right? You have Tom Hanks' character. He's from, uh, let's say, Croatia, because I cannot pronounce that country's name. He gets to New York City, right? He's in the international airport, right? But when he gets there, his country's had a civil war. Everything's blown up over there. They, they, the, the New York City International Airport can't let him go outside those city limits. Technically, he's not a resident anywhere. So they need to keep him there, right? He needs a, a new passport, and you have this newly appointed security manager who, you know, trying to, trying to earn his way and, and keep his position. And he, he says, no, he, he can't leave, right? But, but over time, right, uh, I think it's what, uh, Frank Nixon, that's his name. Frank Nixon gets pretty annoyed at Tom Hanks' character. And, and he's just thinking of every way to get him out, right? And so it's, it's really interesting, right? Um, he knows the security guards do a shift change. Uh, I think it's like at 11 o'clock, right? So he tells Tom Hanks, he says, okay, the, the, the shift is going to change at 11. I'm going to call the security guards five minutes early. All you got to do is just, just walk out. And as the movie goes, the, 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 the security guards do uh, um, get off five minutes early, and so there's this five-minute break, and, and Tom Hanks starts walking towards the exit door. And funny thing, he, he never goes out, but he, he notices the camera, and of course, that camera is connected to this, this mission control center, right, where Frank Nixon is, is just watching everything. He has computer screens, he has the computers, he has the radios, you know, he's watching everything. And, and that is just so interesting, right? It's, that's pretty fascinating, right? Likewise, your heart, a.k.a. your mission control center, right, just like Frank Nixon, just, just watching everything, calling the shots, right, um, just wants to radio security five minutes early, right? You've had a you've had a rough day, right? You just need to you just need to relax for five minutes and 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 just focus on yourself and and and, and man, this would feel really good to just relieve some of that pressure, right? And and you just want to allow Tom Hanks' character, right, A.K.A. your desires, emotions, lust to roam just without any regulations, just a little bit of freedom, right? Well, in Luke 17, 3, Jesus knows this. Jesus calls his disciples to be clear paths towards the application of truth and not a cause for stumbling. He knows the temptation is to let the guard down. And before the disciples are to care for other souls, he calls attention to their own hearts, right? He calls attention to our hearts. Soul care not only begins in your heart, Soul care continues as Christians interact with one another when the opportunity is necessary, right? Soul care continues as Christians interact with one another when the opportunity is necessary. First, Christians warn other believers of error when necessary. Verse number three, if your brother sins, rebuke him. 
In other words, Jesus instructs his disciples of, of warning professing believers while they're in sin. To rebuke this brother or sister in Christ is just to express disapproval of someone, right? You speak seriously, right? You warn in, enter, in order to prevent an action that brings someone to an end. Rebuking someone also requires self-control. It, it requires patience and understanding. And at the same time, you, you have a clear mind to the dangers which this person, when he, if he continues in this lifestyle, right, it's not good, right? In this context, the person is in sin. What is sin, right? Well, it's, uh, it's missing the mark, right? Right here. Um, if your brother sins, if, if your brother is missing the mark, right? If, if, if the red circle in the dartboard, right? If the, you have a dartboard and you have a red circle and that's the holiness and the righteousness of God, that is our aim, right? We live in a mixed condition and yes, we're not perfect, but when we choose our ways, contrary or against God's ways, we miss the mark. We sin. So when Jesus calls you to rebuke someone, uh, the confrontation is not in regards to preferences, right? If someone prefers, let's say, Popeye's chicken over Chick-fil-A chicken, you know, they're still a believer, okay? Um, I am a Christian, uh, not because I love Popeye's, uh, no. But preferences are just preferences, right? Homeschool, music, food, choices of college, right? How you dress, it's just a preference. Um, but sin, sin is missing the mark. You err when you purposely aim for ungodly passions that God neither approves or winks an eye at. And remember, right, we want to remember Luke's purpose in this passage, right? He's giving conditions that keep a Christian as an access to truth and not as an obstacle, right? But you're never more of a stumbling block than when you don't rebuke your brother in sin. And to not rebuke someone is to approve their choices. Not warning your close friend implies to the offender that sin is not as serious, the offender may or, or may not know that he's sinning, or if he is a, an, a spiritually immature believer, he, he may not even be knowing this, and, he, and, his, and his views of, of God are now altered. Thoughts creep in. Did God really say he's holy? Maybe God is like me, and, and he will just excuse it. Uh, Jesus died for my sin. I, I don't need to keep you know, pursuing holiness and sanctification. And besides, my discipler doesn't even seem to care that I keep missing the mark. He may never really, we may never verbally utter these words, uh, but a lack of action demonstrates your lack of love for another believer's sanctification. Now, I'm not sure right now if your mind is doing in, interpretive gymnastics, or maybe I'm about to put something in your mind, but this is, this is what I was thinking, right? So, kept thinking, okay, I, I hear what you're saying, Jesus, but I just can't go up to every believer and start rebuking them, right? I gotta, I gotta wait, right? I gotta, I gotta look for that, that practice or that, that, um, that demonstration of a pattern of sin. And they're basically, their, their life needs to just be in complete ruin before I can go up to them. Um, you know, I, I'm not their Holy Spirit and, and, uh, and I'm just gonna let him do his stuff so I don't just remove his authority, Right? But what really constitutes practice of sin or a pattern? 
Is it, is it one time? Is it two times or, or maybe a week's worth or, or maybe a month or a year? All right, what, what are we setting our, our standards as then? But when I don't submit to the Lord's clear instruction, then rebuking my brother in Christ falls in and out of fashion the way I feel. And I kept trying to twist this text and mean it something that, that would have soothed my conscience a little bit better to not do that. Um, but I couldn't, right? But maybe you're not like me in that regards, and maybe other ideas come in your head, but, but what do they all have in common? Jesus' perfect judgment of Peter's motives underscore this, perfect, uh, this, this point, right? I'm never more, I am never more like Satan when I have man's interests, namely my own, to prevent Christ from accomplishing what he desires, namely my vigilance in soul care. Jesus expects me to rebuke my brother who is sinning, who is purposely aiming to miss that moral mark. Believers warn other believers of their sin when necessary, and rebuking your brother or sister who is in sin is a character trait of someone who is an open conduit, right? A, a, a tunnel, an unblocked bell road, right, towards, towards truth, right? Be prepared for more bell road illustrations, by the way. No. Uh, another diligent effort by the believer in soul care is forgiving believers continuously, right? We're going to forgive continuously. Verse number four, and if he sins against you, oh, sorry, the end of verse three, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. There are no need for prerequisites for forgiveness, right? You're not hand, pulling out the resume. You're not going straight to the section labeled, what are your weaknesses? And then you disqualify that repentance sinner for that, right? Yes, true repentance is outlined in 2 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. But Jesus doesn't ask his disciples to, to pull that out and, and, and go through it and say, okay, you've, you've met all these marks. I can now forgive you because you are truly repentant. But he also, you might be thinking, yes, but, but they've really offended me this time. Or you might be thinking, but, but they, they just don't show any true humility. I see right through it. I, I will not forgive them. Or you might claim, yeah, but, but you, will, you will never understand what, what I've been through, what I've experienced, right? You will never understand what it's like to be attacked like that. And you're right, I won't, and I, I may never uh, experience that. But one thing I like to ask myself is, is the last time I sought God's forgiveness, uh, what was the condition of, of my heart? <laughs> uh, has, has this brother in Christ offense against me when I stack it side by side with, with my offense against God how does that relate Jesus doesn't even allude to that he simply says forgive him so how vigilant are you when it comes to soul care to your own to others? Are you able to gauge the spiritual alertness within your own heart 
so that you can lovingly interact with believers within your sphere of influence? Or would those who know you likely fall into sin because you're unwilling to forgive them? You may be their only access to Christ. Maybe their family is, is unbelieving and they have nobody to talk to about Christ with. And are you hindering from that truth? Or, right, are people that you influence learning Christ more? Are they walking in truth more and loving Christ and, and now just the clear path is laid before them to, to love their Savior more? If you're like me, weak and, and pathetic, and, and now you're feeling this, this weight of duty, you're not alone, right? The lump in your throat is growing as the inadequacies rise. Well, the disciples cry out in similar vein. So the fourth condition Luke provides is that you believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the fourth condition. Believe in the Lord. Believe in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Luke 17, 5. The apostle said, very frantically, increase our faith. Now, a few months prior, right, Jesus, uh, Peter confessed Jesus as God. Peter knew that Jesus was sent by God and that he is God. And these men, right, excluding Judas, did believe in Jesus and his gospel message. And the gospel message laid a foundation, right? But the construction was a little delayed. You remember in uh, Mark 4, uh, sorry, Mark 6, 52, after they, Jesus had calmed the stores and, and the disciples still really couldn't understand what was happening. And, and, and Mark points out that their hearts were, were still hardened, right? That was not completely, but it was enough to doubt Jesus. These men were immature in their faith and, and they waver, often wavered in doubt, like us. I believe in the Gospels, though, you do see a genuine faith in Christ. However, the disciples on their own strength are unable to accomplish Christ's demands. Right? They knew it, and they quickly petitioned to the only one who could supply that, who could uphold them when they needed to vigilantly interact in, in soul care. So, and, and, and what Christ commands here is unnatural to man, right? Soul care that involves personal attentiveness and loving interaction with others is, is not only unnatural, but your heart whisper lies that it's impossible. And without God's word and informing your conscience and without your active dependence upon the Holy Spirit, the last thing you will do is warn another believer of their faulty choices or continually forgive them. And in typical fashions, weighty responsibilities, new commands, and high expectations bring that world down to a, a one-by-one-inch plot of land with nowhere to move, and meet your new landlord. His name is finiteness. <laughs> but in verse 6, right, let Christ's word, his promise, assure you. Notice our Lord's response to this. Verse 6, And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Well, what do we, how do we define faith? Someone knew, yeah. 
Yeah, taking God at his word, right? Here, the Lord answers that and gives an analogy, right? And although this, this description kind of seems other than worldly, right? I believe this illustration is clear and, and simple. And he, but here, here's the point of this illustration, right? The disciples must fully take their master's word at plain value. The value is in his word and not their ability, right? They must take him at his word, and it's not in their ability to accomplish it. It's, it's in his word. It's in what he tells him. What my heart was doing earlier this week, that, that was not taking God at plain value. Again, notice, he, he does not say, if you have faith like a millstone. <laughs> Man, that, that might have been a little tough pill to swallow. But God is a clear communicator. Christ spoke in clear and concise language for his sheep. And notice, right, they didn't ask him for clarity. They doubted because they simply are just like you and me. They probably still have millstones stuck in their head, and it would have seemed like an impossible task to vigilantly take care of their own souls and other souls and not be a stumbling block. But like them, we too also can act sluggish and, and lazy and and we want to hold on to grudges, and we want to let sin slide into our hearts because we're not personally mortifying sin. Yet, Christ is the goal, right? And Christians must be that clear and open conduit or that path, right, towards truth and towards the application of truth, right, before Bell Road was shut down and after Bell Road will be opened. But here's the, here's the crazy part, right? obedience doesn't require this mystical infusion, right? Just hook up the IV and, and just in, infuse spiritual growth, right? A lot of times this, this, this text will be like that, right? Just take it out of context and, and man, I need to move some trees. I need to move mountains, right? And, and I, I need to be really mystical and spiritual about this, right, Jesus? No, Jesus says, just believe, right? It's really, it's like a, he says, it's like a small mustard seed. You plant it, it grows 10 to 15 feet, and it works. If you have faith like that, and, and let's say for the sake of argument, right? Let's say you can speak to that tree, and it will be planted in that sea. And Jesus just illustrates that's how incredibly powerful taking God at his word is, believing God. It's not that millstone. It's, it's the size of a mustard seed. You just, you just believe right? You don't need to be mystical. You don't need to be emotional. You don't need to be extra spiritual and some spiritual superstar, right? You just believe what you read in scripture and you believe, I need to attend to my heart. I need to shepherd souls. I need to confront when I need to, and I, I need to forgive when I need to because I have been forgiven greatly, right? And much like in verse two, he just illustrates the point. Uh, well, you know, what's different than this illustration is, is not a warning, but it's encouragement, right? Much like the Lord's encouraging words to his disciples, I, I hope these words encourage you as well today. Well, without any transition, Jesus continues the illustration, right? And the truth for the disciples that day is the same for you and I today. Every Christian is to be a clear path towards the application of truth, not a cause for stumbling. 
And here we're going to see in verses 7 to 10, we're going to see Luke provide the fifth and the final uh, condition, right? And here it is. You submit as a slave of Christ. Submit as a slave of Christ. If you are a Christian in here, you are a slave of righteousness and your master is the Lord Jesus Christ. Before you came to Christ, you submitted to, not to a loving master, but to a cruel master. He caused you harm, and he caused you pain, and he caused you shame, and he caused you guilt. And yet, you, you loved this master, and his name is sin, and he dominated your life. And your will was subjected to him, and you obeyed your impure passions, and you submitted to unrighteousness, as Romans 6 says, But now as a Christian, right, Christ is master over you. And listen to these sweet words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Not only is, is my master gentle and, and humble in heart, he keeps me in his truth so that I have peace. John 8 says, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And finally, my master has given me a position that I do not deserve. And he illustrates this point by asking three questions to his disciples. Verse number seven in Luke 17. Uh, Which of you, having a slave plowing or or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, hey, come immediately and and sit down to eat? This question is rhetorical, right? It's expecting a no answer. This is this master and slave relationship. It was a common relationship back in the ancient Near East and in Jesus' day. And much like America's early days, there were, of course, horrible and and wicked masters. However, there were good masters and slaves benefited much from an employer benefits today working under his boss. Under those circumstances, the, the slave often found better conditions as a free man. Hard work, a safe home, a, a meal to eat, and, and even the possibility of adoption. And the, and the illustration, again, is, is simple, right? Many of you have jobs and you know what it's like to work, right? The Chick-fil-A analogy is, is too good to pass up, right? Because um, I think every one of you work here, work there. Um, but, but imagine, right? You're, you're, it's, it's, what, what's the busiest time, the lunchtime? Yeah. And uh, what position do you work, CJ? Everywhere. Okay, what, what's the number one? You? Uh, order taking. Order taking? Okay, yeah. Imagine, like, CJ's taking orders, right? And, he, and he's 25 orders in, and he looks over at his manager, and, and, you know, kind of given that, that nod, like, it's time for me to take a break, right? Right? I've worked 25 orders. <laughs> That's a lot of, of angry customers, happy angry customers. Um, no, that, that doesn't happen, right? <laughs> Jesus knows that. He continues, and, he's, and he answers that in verse 8. He says, but will he not say to him, will he not say to CJ at, at Chick-fil-A, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and and serve me while I eat and drink, and, and afterward you may eat and drink. So again, the, the second question is, is rhetorical. This time it's expecting a yes, right? Yes, Jesus, everybody knows after 25 orders, I, 
keep pushing through. I take another 25 orders. That's, that's what's expected of me, right? Or I go until my lunch break. Well, we see a, a third question, and that's in verse 9, right? This is expecting a, a no. Verse 9, he does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? This person, right, in the illustration is a hard worker, right? He's plowing and fields and tending sheep, and that, that's hard work. I can only imagine. I've watched plenty of house on the, Little House on the Prairie to know uh, what kind of hard work that is. Um, but you too, right, are a hard worker, right? Maybe you're not on a farm, but, but you're in school. Some of you work, right? You're doing lots of extracurricular activities. That's, that's good, hard work. This person, right, this guy in the illustration, this slave, right, even has to work harder after a day's work, right? He has that sense of accomplishment. Right? He's done all that, and now he's, now he's going to accomplish more, right? You might even have a sense of accomplishment after years, right? Finishing a, a test, uh, completing a day's work, um, you know, even finishing out uh, this semester in D-groups, right? That's a, that's a sense of accomplishment, um, this person even receives a wage after completing his tasks for the day. Um, he gets to eat at the end of the day. And you will receive a compensation, and you will receive a graded test and allowance. Um, but in terms of, of spiritual maturity, right, or obeying commands, right, we should not be thinking or desiring a thank you or, or a well done or, right, we should expect nothing, absolutely nothing. Verse number 10, so you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we have been commanded. All right, again, the, the construction signs, the workers, the block lanes on Bell Road, it's, it's an obstruction, it's a hindrance. We, we get the point, right? But imagine if these signs and and these block roads all of a sudden start just speaking and saying, hey, thank, aren't you going to thank me for making these roads a little bit better? Aren't you going to congratulate me? I'm doing you a favor. Well, if, if you could talk back to them, I don't know why you would. Why did Eve talk back to, to the serpent? <laughs> uh, you would shout at them and say, are you kidding? You're just doing your job. In fact, you're actually making a stumbling block to me because I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you when I should be keeping my eyes on the road. Remember, you're, you're just doing your job. And that's the question we want to ask us is, is what's keeping us from proclaiming and saying, I am an unworthy slave who is doing only what I've been commanded? I would have one word for that, and that would be in, entitlement. Right? I have a new job. Yep, deserve that. I worked really hard in school. Yeah, put on all those hours. I'm going on vacation, right? Totally need the, the time off to relax, and, and I deserve this, right? Mortified fear of man in, in this year's D groups. Man, wait, no one's congratulating me? No one's giving me high fives and, and asking me how I did it? And, and don't they want to know why I was so quiet and or I gave the right responses, don't, don't you want to congratulate me? Now, nothing is inherently sinful about working hard or, or tests or even going on vacation. Uh, you know, we're going on vacation today. 
Um, our car is packed, and James offered his Tahoe a little bit too late, so we'll be, we'll be driving really crunched. <laughs> um, but when you start believing secular society's definition of what you deserve or what you don't deserve, right? When you start believing the lies that are in your heart that say you deserve things, I have rights, people ought to treat me a certain way, and you need to address me a certain way. Speaking these words then will be like a millstone around your neck rather than approaching God's word as this tiny mustard seed. So how does someone humbly say, I am an unworthy slave? You view your worth and identity from a biblical perspective. Then you say, whoa, and this time the W-O-A-H, right? Whoa, I'm actually better than I do deserve. I am a slave of Christ who himself was the servant who deserved all the glory and all the praise and like John 1 says, everybody rejected him and did not receive him. And yet he was a, a slave. And, yet, and also he does not owe me anything. I sinned once, just evidencing that I can't even keep one command, right? And the wages of my sin is death. But Christ, the slave, submitted to the Father and went to the cross on my behalf and died and bore his wrath in my place and and rose again. And I believe that. That's not a millstone. It's amazing when you think about it also that, that what we don't deserve, right? Have you ever thought about that it's grace that God did not abandon us at conversion? Have you ever thought about that? That even after God saves us, he, he could have justified us and declared us not guilty and then just, I'll see you in heaven. <laughs> right? And yet, he gives us his word, he gives us the church, and he gives us his truth, right, that enables us to be more like Christ. We don't deserve that, right, but he gives it to us, and that, that's such a great blessing, right? But that's how you start thinking, right, and able to say, I am an unworthy slave. I'm actually better than I deserve. Next, right, after you've obeyed this command, right, you quietly thank the Lord for his grace, Right? I've only done which, that which I've been commanded. And without his word or his spirit, what, what source of strength do I have to lean upon? If you are not mortifying the sin of entitlement, you are a stumbling block, a hindrance, and a, an obstruction or a cause for others to sin. But if you want to lead other believers towards a greater walk in truth, right, a proper sense of your identity is absolute If you guys have any questions, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Um, if you go on Grace to You, uh, John MacArthur has a great sermon on, on just the word slave. Uh, I'd uh, recommend you guys to listen to that. Thank you. And you're dismissed. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>